wasn't expecting that video to make tears come out of my face, but we can, uh, we'll talk about some end times here and that'll fix that quick. Um, if you got your Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 21, and we're actually going to read the main passage that was out of this morning's devotional. Again, if you haven't gotten one of these yet, I encourage you to pick one up. There's also a kid's version, so the whole family can join in together. So we read in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25, and these are Jesus' words in what is quite possibly his scariest sermon ever. And he's talking about signs of the end times, and he says this in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and and, and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, he told him this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. So be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen so that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Well, welcome to Judgment Day and Merry Christmas. Why are we talking about the end times at Christmas? Two reasons. For one, Advent is a season of two things, right? Advent is a season of celebrating not only the God who came in the form of the baby Jesus, but also anticipating and preparing for the God who is coming again. The word Advent translates to coming or he is coming. So it's a season of of preparation and expectation and anticipation of the God who is returning. Second reason is because Jesus speaks in this passage of a world that is full of fear and anxiety. A world that is full of chaos. And it sounds a lot like the world that we live in. Amen. You don't have to go far to see what the last mass shooting was. Or the last act of terrorism. Or, or, or not even just that, but our, our society is overrun by disease and bigotry, and racism, and all kinds of these terrible things, right? And we see that these are signs of the end times, right? These are signs of the end will Jesus, when Jesus will return to set right all that is wrong in the world. And so this first week of Advent, we focus in on the anticipation of hope. We focus in on waiting. Anybody in here love to wait? <laughs> Jeff does. Thanks, brother. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I hate waiting. I hate it. And uh, uh, anyone who in here can testify, if you've ever been to a fast food drive through with me, what is my limit, the maximum numbers of cars that I will get behind? Two, two, two. I see the twos. <laughs> 
if there are more than two cars in a drive-thru, I will park and make everybody get out of the car and go inside because I'm not going to wait for three cars, right? Now, I will say, when the nieces were younger and were in baby seats, the criteria changes slightly. If you have kids in car seats, that adds time, right? So now you've got to wait to get the kids out of the car before you can go inside. So there I would let it creep up to maybe four or five cars in the drive-thru, right? And of course, if you have a sleeping child in the car... You sit in the drive-thru all night if you need to. <laughs> you are not going to wake that kid up. <laughs> but waiting is, is a natural, it's just part of life, right? It's part of life. Allie opened my eyes a few weeks ago to the Chipotle has an app on your phone. I love Chipotle, but I hate waiting in line, right? And now I'm sitting in my office. I can order my food on the app on my phone, drive six minutes to the Chipotle, and it's waiting for me on the food rack. And so I save six minutes waiting in line so I can spend an hour sitting in Chipotle just enjoying it there. Because <laughs> it's not about how much time it takes. It's, the, it's just I don't want to wait for someone else, right? <laughs> Two of my brothers were in the Army. Both of my brothers were in the Army. And they, had, they said the unofficial slogan of the Army was, hurry up and wait. It's this idea like they want you to be ready at any time. Just wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Um, so waiting... <laughs> Waiting's a bummer, um, but not always. I think the anticipation sometimes builds depending on what we're waiting for, right? And my dad, when I was a kid, he had this old Chevy truck, and it had a loud exhaust on it. And you could hear, every day when he would come home from work, you could hear the truck coming down the last bit of the road and pulling up into the driveway. You could hear the change in the engine tone as it shifted into park, and then it, once it, it turned off, you knew it was about 30 seconds until he walked inside the front door. And one day, he came home with a little motorcycle that he picked up at a swap meet. Didn't run, didn't matter, because we spent the next few months when he would get home from work, working on that thing, rebuilding it, tearing it down and rebuilding it from the bottom up. And so every night when I heard that truck exhaust rolling up the drive, up the drive, into park, turning off, sometimes I couldn't wait 30 seconds for him to get inside. I'd run outside and be like, let's go, let's get working on this thing, right? There was a sound, the anticipation. When you hear that, it was like... Yes, he's coming. There was another day. I don't know. This may have just been my family. Has anyone ever experienced siblings quarreling in your family? No? Okay. Um, so we did this from time to time, as, as was our prerogative, right? And my mom is a strong woman, and 99% of all of our arguments like, were settled on the spot. But every once in a while, and I remember one day in particular, me and my sister had gotten into something with each other. I don't know. And we heard those words that maybe you've heard at some point in your life. Just wait until your dad gets home, you know, <laughs> right? Well, suddenly the anticipation changed. And this day, when I heard the exhaust coming down the street and pulling up into the drive and putting into park and turning off, that 30 seconds felt like 30 minutes of agony, of waiting And as soon as he walked through the front door, smiling to greet his loving family, I took one look at him, burst into tears, and ran down the hall into my room, (laughs) right? Because your experience of waiting depends on what you're waiting for, right? And the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, they had been waiting not just for 30 seconds, not just for a few hours. They had been waiting for hundreds of years for this Messiah that was foretold, that would come to deliver them from slavery, that would come to deliver them from, from tyranny, that would set up and establish their kingdom of peace. Right? And, and, the, and there's scripture that talks about this. The book of Isaiah in chapter 11, 
The prophet talks about this day that will come. This is what the Messiah will look like. This is how the Messiah will be. And he goes on to describe a little bit of what this kingdom of peace might look like here on the earth. And in Isaiah 11, verse 6, it says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The kitty becomes a vegetarian. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a picture of peace where wild animals and children play together with no fear of harm, right? And what, how different is that picture from the world in which we live and the world in which Israel had lived for generation after generation? And they waited. They waited for this promise, for this Messiah to come. And so I'd like to ask you a question this morning. What are you waiting for? Now, in this season of your life, what are you waiting for? Maybe a relationship. Maybe you're waiting for... Huh? Did I miss it? <laughs> oh, Siri. Hey, Siri. No, okay. All your phones are on silent mode now. That's good. <laughs> Shh. Did you accidentally summon me? My phone just said that. <laughs> you are dismissed. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but maybe you're waiting. What are you waiting? Maybe you're waiting for a relationship or waiting for a loved one to come to Christ or you're waiting for a dream to materialize or you're waiting just for me to get over with it so you can get home and get to lunch. That song that we sang earlier, right before prayer time, as it is in heaven, the verse said this, should I suffer long, this is not my home. I know heaven waits for me. And though the night is dark, heaven owns my heart. And I have all I need to sing. And it goes on to say this, this, this phrase that catches me every time. It says, while I'm waiting, I'm not waiting. Because I know that heaven lives in me. We know that heaven lives in us because when Jesus came the first time, he established his kingdom in us, in our hearts. As Kurt said, he became the king of our heart. Or at least he set it up so that he could be. Um, while we're waiting, not waiting, I, I heard someone describe this concept as the idea of waiting well. So while you're waiting, how you wait plays an incredible um, role in, 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 I think, how that season looks for you. And we see stories in the Bible of people who did not wait well, right? In Genesis, we read about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And, and Abraham, his wife, Sarah, had been barren. She couldn't have children. And when Abraham was 70 years old, God gave him a promise and said, you're going to have a son and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and Abraham's like, um, I'm 70. And Sarah's no spring chicken either. She's not getting any younger. And God says, but I made a promise. And, and so I imagine they probably got excited, but then a year goes by and they're like, okay, okay, he's taking his time on this one. And then two years, and then three, and then four, and then 10. 
And in Genesis, I think it's chapter 16, 10 years later, Sarah decides she's done waiting. And she comes up with her own plan, right? And so if God's plan for us is plan A, Sarah came up with a plan B, a do-it-yourself plan. And she said, take my maidservant, Hagar, sleep with her, and you'll have a son. And we can help God fulfill his promise, right? And, uh, and so he does. I don't know why, but he did. And then and Hagar gets pregnant. She has a child named Ishmael. And as you can expect, plan Bs always have terrible consequences. And so as the family feuds arise, eventually Hagar and Ishmael were sent out into the wilderness. By the way, did you know Hagar is the first person in the Bible to give God a name? The God who sees me. So even in her exile, she was aware that there was a God that was still seeing her. So 10 years, 20 years, 29 years later at the age of 99, God reminds Abraham of the first promise that he had given him. He's like, do you remember when I promised? Yeah, okay. I'm still going to do that. And at age 100, Abraham, through his wife, Sarah, gave birth to Isaac. And God fulfilled his promise. But again, as plan B's have terrible consequences, you see how the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael for generation after generation after generation were in conflict even to this day. Because they didn't wait well. Fortunately... There's other stories in the Bible, right? And there's a great story about someone who did wait well, and it's actually a Christmas story. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to talk about a man named Simeon. And in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, says that now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of... Of Israel. Now that phrase, the consolation of Israel, Luke is quoting specifically from Isaiah chapter 40. And it, and it was a well-known passage. And any Jew that had heard or read this phrase would have immediately thought, oh yeah, these are the words of the prophet Hosea that starts with comfort my people. Talk about your comforter is coming. Your deliverer is coming. The Messiah is coming. Um, so he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Now, in your Bible, there's two Testaments, right? Old Testament, New Testament. And the last book of the Old Testament is called, what? Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi. And what's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. No comment. Um, just kidding. So there's one page, basically, that separates, and it's probably the page that says New Testament, right? But between the Old Testament, that one page represents 500 years of waiting. And even longer than that, right, since Isaiah first prophesied these words. And so for generation after generation, the, the, the nation of Israel had been waiting, waiting for this Messiah. Imagine handing it down to your grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren for generation after generation. That You hear this promise, but you begin to wonder, okay, 29 years was hard enough for Abraham. 30 seconds was hard enough for me. What about 500 years of waiting? And what favor was on Simeon when he found out that he was going to get to live to see this long 
awaited Messiah. And in verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, how many times do you think he went to the temple courts before wondering, is this the day? Not yet. Is this the day? Not yet. But he takes the child in his arms and says in verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your, what? Salvation, which you have prepared in the, in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And for Simeon, 500 years of not yet had finally turned into now. But it wasn't exactly what the nation of Israel was expecting, right? Because what happened when Jesus came? Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, was still occupied by the Romans, right? There was still poverty. There was still orphans without families. There was still injustice all over the land, and yet salvation had come. And so Advent is a time when we celebrate both the now and the not yet. We celebrate the Messiah and his kingdom that has come and is alive in us Um, And yet, with great hope, we anticipate and wait for and prepare for the day when he will return and establish his kingdom of peace once and for all. Amen. So how do we prepare? Many of you have been to my house before. Um, It's a little house. I love it, though. And if you've been to my house for either hanging out on a Sunday afternoon or for college party or gathering or for a youth event or for a meeting or whatever the case, I have more people over at my house than I have time to prepare for usually. And so if you've been to my house, you've usually at some point probably seen cobwebs. Yes, I decorate for Halloween year round. Um, You've probably seen layers of dust on the furniture, right? The only thing I got to dust off is the TV because that's all you need. Um, Kidding. Uh, you've probably at some point seen like a car's worth of camping gear piled on the dining room table, okay? Because when our lives, when we're in the motion and fluidity of our lives, we don't think about necessarily preparing for others. But the first time I hosted a party that I knew a bunch of people were going to be coming, and, and most of whom had never seen my house before, something started swelling up inside me. <laughs> like, like, Oh, I can't let them see how I really am, right? It's like, I got to prepare. I got to clean. And I did. I spent an entire day from sunup to sundown in preparation for this first party. I nailed up baseboards in my house. I'd gone two years without them. But I suddenly decided to, (laughs) company's coming. I got to dress this place up, you know? There's stuff that's been waiting to be done for a long time, and I got to get to it. Um, And then I cut the grass in the front yard, pulled weeds in the backyard, picked up food and snacks and deep cleaned my house. And when I say I deep cleaned my house, I mean, I may or may not have hired a cleaning company off Amazon to come and deep clean my house for me because company was coming. And when someone important is coming to your house, right, you prepare, (laughs) you get ready. There's a guy in the New Testament called John the Baptist. And after this 500 years of silence, he has the job of letting people know he's the messenger that's going ahead of the Messiah to say, hey, get ready. Get ready. And we pick up the the story here in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 2, that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And isn't it interesting how the word of God often comes in Scripture in the wilderness? 
And if you find yourself spiritually in the wilderness this morning, maybe keep your ear tuned for the word of the Lord. But John, he's a, so the word comes and he begins preaching all around the area of Jordan, right? The same river where Joshua had led the Israelites through to the promised land um, ages before. And, and he's baptizing people. And then, and then he starts talking about this Messiah. And in verse 4, he says, prepare the way for the Lord, right? And now what's interesting here, Luke is actually quoting the exact same passage that Simeon had quoted when talking about the coming Messiah, Isaiah chapter 40. So Luke is quoting that, and he says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. Now leave that up for a minute. Do you notice anything weird about this? Do you, do you kind of ask, like, John, what are you talking about? What do mountains and roads and potholes and stuff have to do with anything? This actually is a construction plan, right? This is a plan for how to build a road in Bible times. And in the New Testament, if there was a traveling dignitary like a king that was going to go and visit a remote village, before he went, he would actually send a messenger ahead of him to tell the village, hey, the king is coming. Get ready. And so the village then would set about the roads because a lot of these remote villages were hard to get to. But they would set about the roads, filling in potholes, making crooked roads straight, filling in valleys and, and smoothing things out because they wanted to make it as easy as possible for the king to come. It's kind of cool. Maybe I'm just a Bible nerd, but I'm like, what? Um... And so John is referring to this, and everybody that would have heard this in the time would have known, well, yeah, that's what you do for a king. But then John goes on to describe specifically how to prepare in the verses that come. And it becomes apparent that the king he's talking about is not like any other king. This is the king, wants to be the king of your heart. And so how do we prepare the way for the Lord to make it as easy as possible for him to find his way into our heart. And we see an example of this, like verse 11. Um, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. He's saying one way that we prepare our hearts for the coming king is that we show compassion because that's the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. And so we prepare by participating. And again, I know Kurt mentioned it. If you haven't picked up one of these Advent Mercy Project calendars yet, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. There are ways if you have some spare change, get some quarters in for the laundry day. If you don't have change, but you may have a couple hours to spare, um, we've got lots of projects and ways to get involved. And we, pre- we prepare our hearts by participating. And by the way, Jesus isn't just any king, Right? where it says that he is the king above every other king. And if the king is coming and he wants to be the king of our heart, is there anything that maybe we need to prepare in here? Is there anything broken that maybe we just need to throw away and be done with it? Is there anything we need to straighten up as we prepare for the king? who has come and is coming. 
And the king is coming. He made a promise, right? He made a promise that the kingdom would be available now, and it is. And he promised, he also promised that he would come again and tidy things up, and he will. In Hebrews 10, we read this, starting in verse 11. In the first covenant, okay, before Jesus, in the first covenant, every day, every officiating priest stands at his post serving, offering over and over those same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But in the new covenant, verse 12, but after he, Jesus, stepped up and he stepped up to offer his single sacrifice for sins for all time. So check this out. He stepped up and then he sat down in the position of honor at the right hand of God, verse 13. And since then, he has been what? (laughs) Jesus waits too. (laughs) Is that funny? Um, He has been waiting for the day when he rests his feet on his enemy's backs. I don't know about you, but when I get home today, I plan on sitting down on my couch and kicking my feet up, right? And I get this picture. That's what Jesus is doing. He's kicking his feet up on his enemies. And what are the enemies, the adversaries to this kingdom of peace that Jesus will reign in? For one, I can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on racism. Can't wait for racism just to be done. I can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on poverty and child abuse and human trafficking and hunger and sickness and disease. I can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on all of my failed plan Bs. This last Wednesday, Ricardo was sharing with our students your students, teenagers. And he spoke, he, he, he did his own reimagining, modern kind of reimagining of what I, Isaiah 11 might look like in our modern culture. And, and I'm going to read a portion of it. It's called A Day is Coming. And he says, A day is coming where you won't be judged by how you look. A day is coming when all war will cease. A day is coming where mass shootings won't happen, not because of politics or politicians, but because Jesus will rule. A day is coming where drugs and alcohol won't destroy lives. A day is coming where divorce will no longer be a thought. A day is coming where insecurity will be destroyed because who we are will be found in who Jesus is. A day is coming where anxiety and fear will be demolished Because peace is a promise that he keeps. A day is coming where all unwanted children will be loved, where murder will never happen, where no one will die due to hunger because everyone will be taken care of. Yes, a day is coming when everyone will live in harmony. And so we eagerly wait for, anticipate, and prepare for that day. And as we get ready, here's a promise. We're going to go back to Isaiah 40, the same passage that Simeon and John the Baptist had quoted from. And it says in verse 30 that even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, some translations say wait. Those who hope, those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I'd like to end the message with a prayer out of the devotional for the week. And um, and then Kurt's going to come and lead us through a time of communion together. But this prayer, let this kind of sink in as I read it here. It says, God of our waiting time, 
with the holy ones who have gone before us. We long once more for the coming of Jesus, your word made flesh. Utter your word anew in our world, at once beautiful and wounded. Open our hearts to listen for your voice as the human family cries out for justice and hungers for meaning. Wait with us, accompany us, work and pray through us for the unfolding of your promise, for the fullness of your dream this Advent and always.